Welcome to Keeping Work Human, a podcast series about tackling the tough topics of cultivating and maintaining strong organizational cultures. Each episode features pioneering CHROs and business leaders who share stories, learnings, and their path forward in a workplace that has changed forever. Hey, humans, it's Steve Pemberton, the Chief Human Resources Officer at WorkHuman, and welcome back to another episode of Keeping Work Human. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, Torin Ellis. Torin is the author of Rip the Resume, host of SiriusXM Career Mix, and an expert on all things DE&I, which makes this the perfect opportunity to hear uh, his thoughts on how we can create a better way of working. We're looking forward to this conversation for some time. So, Torrin, welcome to the show. How you doing? I'm wonderful. And the only thing that I want to add to that is co-host of Crazy and the King with my dear pod partner, Julie Sowash. And we titled it Crazy and the King because she operates with a hidden disability. And we wanted to make sure that every single time people listen, that they listen with an ear towards those that carry a disability. So thanks for having me on the pod. Where are you calling from? I'm actually in Baltimore, Maryland, referred to as Charm City. Charm City, amongst many other nicknames, right? Be more. <laughs> yes, indeed. We got a couple other ones. We'll leave those off for another segment. Uh, yeah, we got to, you know, that may be the most nicknamed city in America. <laughs> well, you know, the one, I think the one for me, Steve, that kind of stood out the most that really never got a lot of traction is the city that reads. So when you would drive through the city, we would have on your benches by like, the bus station, or perhaps in a park, it would have engraved on the bench, the city that reads or a city that reads. I couldn't remember that, but what frustrated me most was great phrase, but you're cutting our libraries. You're closing libraries through the city. So mm -hmm. how is that? But nonetheless, and I think she's at the Library of Congress now. She came from Baltimore City. So we are trying. We're doing the best that we can. Yeah, ever more necessary. Amongst other things, well, the power and the impact of literacy is uh, something that uh, we're certainly going to talk about at a later date, too. Torrin, for, our, you know, for the folks who are hearing uh, me for the first time, tell us a bit about your background and what you're up to these days. Yeah, I'll do my best to do it in 60 seconds. I got into the talent acquisition space indirectly in 1993 when I ran sales teams for MCI Communications. And when I left MCI in 1998, I started a boutique agency. I've always, for the most part, been external in my recruiting days. And from 98 to 2012, it was really about transactional recruiting. But the frustration of the bubble of 01 and the economic collapse of 08 really put me on that path of what do I really want to do with organizations? And, and in 2011, 2010, I started wrestling with, do I start a recruitment marketing firm or do I do a consultancy? focused on diversity and inclusion. And naturally, I landed on the consultancy. And so this is where I've been for the last 10 years or so. And portion of my day, Steve, I spend working with organizations trying to help them optimize their diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging strategy. I either do it from the bottom up through talent acquisition or top down when I work with leaders that have that tranquilizer of pause in their forearm. I yank it out and try to help them get moving forward. Mm. I wanted to ask in that spirit, you know, some of the existing conversation about talent acquisition and DE&I specifically, when you've seen in the last month or so, you know, so many uh, you know, senior leaders uh, say in 
some way, shape, or form, we can't find the talent. And in a couple of cases, landed them in some in some difficulty. Uh, what's your perspective on that? You know, on that really assessment of the landscape and of the marketplace. Yeah, I'm going to hit it from a different angle. We have that phrase in the marketplace, the war for talent. It's a phrase that actually hit the scene probably around 1996, 1998. I share that because I want you to know that if you are inside of an organization, and we've all been in the organizations where we have the best and the brightest recruiting team, we have the best and the brightest software development team, we have the best and the brightest here and over here and over here, and yet when it comes to diversity, when it comes to inclusion and representation, we're not the best. We can't find talent. We're lowering the bar. And what I say to that, Steve, is that all of those organizations, in my opinion, have hidden behind a curtain of complacency and that they've allowed mediocrity to be the core of how they measure their talent acquisition efforts. And so I challenge every organization that I go into that we will not have disrespectful discourse. What do I mean by that? When you tell me or when you say to me that going after underrepresented talent is a lowering of the bar, that's disrespectful. That's absolutely a disrespectful statement to make to me as a black man, to someone with a disability, to someone who's on the LGBTQ spectrum. That's disrespectful. And so I check that and challenge that. And then we work on how do we optimize that? What tools are you utilizing to help you do the search? What resources are you putting in place internally? What collaboration agreements do you have in the community? What are you doing to work inside of the marketplace with other organizations? Trust me, if you need talent and company B and C needs talent, work together to find talent. So there's a number of solutions. What we can't do is be complacent. You know, the reality is that you have so many tools at our disposal now. I would add to that, what is your pipeline plan then? Sure. We know that there are disparities in STEM disciplines. Absolutely. What's your pipeline plan then? More specifically, the answer is, you know, is uh, rarely, well, we just can't find, quote unquote, find any. Because you don't ever really say that in anything else, right? I mean, you know, for anything else, you do not accept the situation as it is. You pivot and you say, okay, if that's the circumstance, and where's the possibility here? And to your point about being disrespectful, a companion point that to that is, well, this isn't really about something else then, right? Because in every other facet of your business, you will find a way. And so the unwillingness to find a way here is about something else. So let's deal with what that something else is. You just touched on, you touched on, Steve, I'm sorry to cut you off. You touched yeah. on the point. It's skill versus will. And I give every single organization the benefit of the doubt. I go into the engagement, the mandate, the conversation, assuming that you do have the best talent acquisition team. You do have that best eight team that you, you stand on, that you prowess on. I believe that. So I'm not challenging your skill. I'm not suggesting that you all are not capable, competent. Mm-hmm. What I'm challenging is your will. Are you intentional enough? Are you willing to push back on that hiring manager that just throws a requisition in front of you and says, I need someone right now? Or are you willing to really evaluate that requisition and say, you know what, this is an evergreen role. We can probably go after this one a little bit different because we have a constant flow of talent. This is a role that's critical and hard to fill, but we don't have that many of these. 
so we can go after this one a little bit different. What are you doing intentionally? Where are you spending the money? Are you going to the same five, six, seven academic institutions? Or are you saying, you know what? We've invested in those schools for the last 20 years. They know who we are. Let's take that money and move it to five different schools where we have no relationship. Let's begin to build a relationship with that career center, the department heads, the students, the alumni organizations, fraternities and sororities. Let's invest that money in that direction. That's a part of DNI. It's really about how do you reallocate resources? That would be headcount, that would be dollars. How do you reallocate them in a way that adds efficiency and effectiveness into how you do what it is that you say is important to the organization? And be consistent in your application of will. The same will that you utilize and leverage in other parts is certainly true and applicable here. Absolutely. Well, in the same spirit, I wanted to pivot a bit more to a specific population, given that October's National Disability Awareness Employment Month, although, you know, there's no doubt that this should be the case all year long. And so I wanted to ask you, you touched on it actually when you, you know, provided the amendment to your bio, and you and I have, you know, some similar paths around advocacy of employing people with disabilities in particular. But I wanted to ask where this comes from for you. Why is it so important to you? Great question. So first and foremost, as a Black man, I've been Black and breathing for 51 years. I've had my instances where my color has been an impediment. And what I recognize is that if, in fact, I'm going to show up and be in a space that I say is important, then I need to make sure that I am available to showing up for all people. And when I say all people, all people, that's to include cisgender white men. But when I think about people with disabilities and the number, the sheer number, more than a billion across the globe that have a disability, I believe the statistic, Steve, is somewhere around one in four will assume or will catch that disability sometime in life. They're not even born with it. When I think about that audience, when I think about what they can contribute to the workforce, when I think about that phrase of a war for talent, when I think about some of the roles that they could easily be doing if organizations just simply place those opportunities in front of that population, it's incredibly important. I mean, it's vitally important that I'm focused on them as well as any other human being. For me, diversity and inclusion really is about humanity. I often say to people, the ROI of DNI is greater humanity. And so it's not special. It's not a bold move. It's not something that I feel I should be patted on the back for. People with disabilities deserve their access to opportunity, just like any other audience. So yes, this is their month. I think, as you, you know, so appropriately said, we should be focused on them throughout the year. And I try my best to do that through the podcasts and other things that we're doing. But it's vitally important that we consider them for opportunities, especially the opportunities that they are capable of assuming and completing. Yeah, there, there clearly needs to be a, you know, a pivot in mindset, you know, because the, the reality is that when you have a disability, you navigate the world differently. You have to Absolutely. navigate Absolutely. the world differently. And that gives you, you know, there's a direct line between navigating that world differently and innovation. You don't have a Braille system, you know, comes from Louis Braille because of the way that he had to navigate the world. And so this system that we have came because of the disability that he had. And I think that unfolds in a lot of different ways. You know, the unemployment rate, 
whatever the unemployment rate is at any point in America, if you have a disability, it's double that. And then you have this kind of wrestle, which is, so do I disclose that I have a disability? Because that may mitigate opportunity, you know, for me. And Toronto, I think you said something really important that I wish, you know, so many other folks understood about one speaking for all, right? So you have a lot of chief diversity officers, for example, who will say, you know, as, as a African-American man or Latina woman, I, I have a responsibility to speak for all. And yet, you know, because you've had experiences as a black man and been on the periphery of something and not fully able to be part of something, though you know you have the capability, that gives you, to me, this window into understanding what people with disabilities navigate the world with. So yeah, I've never kind of bought this idea. You hear a lot of people say this, right? And you've actually heard it in culture. It's a black thing you wouldn't understand, to which I say, not so fast. You've been on the periphery of something. You've been in the shadows for something. You understand what it's like to be othered. You know, this idea somehow that you can't relate to somebody who's black, somebody who has a disability, somebody who's gay, because you didn't grow up that way. I'm not giving you that hall pass. I think you can understand, actually. And because you can understand, now you can lean in on their behalf. Yeah, absolutely. And let me say something to that, Steve. I believe Jane Elliott did a study back in the 70s. It could be the 80s. Don't quote me on the dates. But in Jane Elliott's study, she gave black and brown dolls on to her students mm-hmm. in her classroom. And the bottom line of that study, you can go out and research it as a listener. But the bottom line of that is a lot of people felt like or feel like this shift in power is something to be afraid of. Mm. A lot of people that are white feel like, well, if black people get in control, if they get access if they have PL, if they have executive decision-making responsibility, that they're going to infract upon me something that I don't necessarily want. They have a nefarious feeling about that shift in power. And I challenge people that we must have a different relationship with power, but that we don't have to act in a nefarious way. We don't have to do what has historically been done to us. And so I don't operate that way. I just simply say, we are all human. I'm giving you that benefit of the doubt. If you cross me, you'll deal with me in that regard. But other than that, I have nothing but love for each and every person that is walking and breathing. I've uh, on more than one occasion suggested to those who in some way, shape or form make exactly that point. I'll say it as bluntly as you're saying it and as candidly, but that's how they're feeling. That, well, what happened to that group of people is gonna is what they're gonna do to me. And my first reaction to that torrent is to me the first signs you just don't know the culture. Because if you did, you would know that that as, and I, I can only speak as an African-American, that is not how we have ever shown up in the world. And what's more, you know, how can I give you an experience? I, I've literally told people, you know, in a pre-COVID world, I says, okay, so, you know, Sunday's the end of your day, right? And let's say that rather than your usual place of worship, you're going to go to an African-American church. Now, you've been the whole day, right? The whole, the whole week, that is. You've been in meetings, you've gone to work, you've been in social, whatever. That Sunday, you're going to go to a place of worship that you've not been to before. And you walk into a Black church, and you're white, or anything that is discernibly not African-American, and it's obvious. Well, one of the first things you know is that we have greeting our visitors, right? So the pastor's in the pulpit, the pastor says, who here is visiting? And you stand up, say your name, what congregation you're from. 
And I tell a lot of my friends who have that question, from Monday through Saturday, you, there is no place you've been that you will be greeted as warmly as you will as a stranger in that black church on a Sunday. And why is that? Because we don't ever want you to feel how we felt all week to be the only one. See, we know how that feels. So you're in our house, in our culture, at our reunion, in our church, at our historically black colleges, we want you to feel welcomed. That's us, right? That's who we are. That's how we we are. are. That's how we are. Absolutely. Absolutely. In the words of Cornell West, we have been a hated and hunted people, and yet we have told and taught the world how to love. And I so endear, I mean, I take that, you know, as a, it just runs through me. And you don't necessarily get to see it all the time, but I do try to make sure that when I show up, I hit a room with a different type of energy. And not that my different is better, just that I want you to know that I'm happy to be here. I want you to know that I'm happy to be, I'm happy to be in your presence, in your relation, I'm happy. Let's do whatever it is we're supposed to be doing right here. We have taught the world how to love, and I love who we are. So I don't really succumb to these conversations around that shift in power and, and all that other stuff. But yeah. I absolutely and always lend my voice to the underrepresented, the under-resourced, and the under-supported. For sure. Well, this is a time of allyship, I think. And so what are the things that organizations can do to be greater allies to more inclusive of people with disabilities? Well, I think a couple of things that they can do. Number one, they can begin to have some different relationships with organizations, you know, National Federation for the Blind, Muscular Dystrophy. You can have a relationship with my dear friend, Dr. Hadaya Green out of Atlanta, Georgia, who runs the Orly Cancer Research Foundation. There are different relationships that you can have because those relationships will then usher you into communities, to audiences that you are not necessarily accustomed to being around. And so I think it's awesome for organizations to at large create different relationships. I think it's incredibly vital or important that ERGs, BRGs, ARGs, whatever you call them in your respective organization, that you have an internal and external alignment that internally you are working to support mm-hmm. business units and departments in the organization, but that externally you are working to create relationships inside of community, inside of churches, inside of, I guess, non-traditional learning paths. There are a number of things that we can do to be in front of, to be in proximity to people with disabilities. Third thing that we should do as an organization, we got to figure out what the frequency is in our respective culture but we got to do everything that we can to make people feel comfortable addressing something that you said 12 minutes ago, undeclared disability. Do we reveal that disability? We have to make that space safe so that people feel like nothing is going to be in jeopardy if I reveal that I have this disability, that I'm struggling, that I'm supporting a, a loved one, a spouse or something. So I think the three things that we can do, organizations can do a better job of reaching out and establishing, doing their philanthropic giving, including all people with disabilities in their CSR initiatives, ESG initiatives. ERGs can do a better job externally in creating relationships. And then as a whole, organizations can do a better job of nurturing a safe space 
for their already existing employee base. There's a wonderful group that, uh, that I actually chaired for a couple of years, Disability In, that is run by Jill Houghton, which is really a consortium of companies uh, who come together and they're sharing all their different practices and they run the gamut from, you know, in the finance industry, manufacturing, retail. And so you hear all of the different strategies around employment, around retention, around accommodation. And it's really just a fantastic organization because it also focuses on the generation that is coming, you know, as well. So conference had to go virtual this year. The conference every year is just just absolutely fantastic. It's been one of my, you know, one of my great honors to be connected, you know, to that group and incredibly, incredibly inspiring, um, you know, be part of that population. So disability in is, uh, and there are others, of course, you know, as, as well, uh, but all focused on employment because that's the, really the next frontier. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask about, you know, fast, kind of fast forwarding the future here, you know, a little bit, you know, this is a time of, um, uh, I consider this a time of just great reckoning, you know, around systems, structures, access. Turn, how do you see that landscape? And more importantly, how do you see that landscape, you know, in the next, you know, two to three years? I mean, uh, uh, these conversations around equity, social justice, is this our time of reckoning in your view? Uh, if so, why so? And if not, why not? I absolutely believe that it is a time of reckoning and that well, I'm just going to be very straightforward. Black and brown employees inside of organizations, this is the moment for you to speak up. If, in fact, you are not feeling empowered, you feel as if you do not have a voice. I don't know what you need to do to calibrate, but when you hit the office place, this is now the time for you to speak up. This is the time for you to have that conversation around your career progression, your trajectory, your needed resources, red flags that you have raised in the past that have gone unresponded to. Mm -hmm. This is the time for you to speak up. And when you ask me, what do I see as being, oh, I'm sorry, and white employees, this is the time for you to speak up as well. Absolutely. This is the time for everyone to speak up because the reason why we are here, Steve, is because we have gone through too many injustices in silence. We have watched too Mm -hmm. many pandemics unrest, injustices in silence. You know, we've gone about what it is that we do. We wake up in the morning, we put our feet on the floor, we get dressed, we get to the office place, totally ignoring all of these examples of injustice that have been happening. We've had a number of George Floyds. Yes. We still have children at the border in cages. You saw the story a couple of weeks ago. They're performing hysterectomies on women without their permission. That's a workplace, right? That's a work-related scenario. Someone's doing that. There's an association or an organization that should be saying, wait a minute, that should not be happening. In no way should doctors be doing that. Who's the governing body over that? That's an injustice. So I do believe that it is a point of reckoning. And when you ask me, what do I see? I see if we continue to speak up, if Stephen Torrance, and Sarah and Jane and Jess and Kathy and Karen and, and Bob, and if we speak up, then we continue to make progress over the next two and three years. We continue to understand that there is no finish line in progress, that there's always something that deserves our attention. It's not always negative. It's just that life deserves our presence. We have to be present. And I think for far too long, Steve, we have operated in silence 
we've operated as if, you know what, it doesn't really impact me. So, eh, no, nah, we got to speak up. And yeah. so what I want to see over the next three years is that the tenor, that the tenor around inclusion and equity and representation is at the same fever pitch that it's at right now. You know, that I think is almost a prescription for the next few years. I, I've, I've been, you know, in a spirit of being candid because I think, you know, you and I are now in our early 50s. Something happens, Tarn. I think when you turn 50, man, you just say what you want to say, you know, <laughs> and you kind of let it land where it lands. You like it, you like it, you don't, you don't. I'll be okay. <laughs> You'll be okay. You know, I really think that on, this, on the matters of, whether it's, we talk about disability or race or LGBT, it's really not on us anymore. In, in other words, I think, you know, th- th- there are people who literally crawled up the steps of the Capitol building who had disabilities to show how you had to navigate the world, elevate. You, can you imagine, you know, you imagine that visual, I mean, it's little pictures of this. And the same thing's happened in the Black community where people marched, protested, kneeled, oftentimes at great risk to themselves. So it's really not about these communities relentlessly clear about the importance of equity. This is about allies now, right? This is about who's going to come stand beside us on Pettus Bridge, for example, or crawling up those steps. Not about us anymore. It's about, it's really going to be about that collective that you're describing you know, my, my optimism comes from seeing those people willing to do that now who realize that you made an important point, realize, like, listen, you cannot avoid this. This is not something you say, well, that's their problem. I don't really need to deal with that. That is not a safe society that is hopeful that we're, that we're seeing is a rejection. Okay, that behavior, that's a deal breaker for me. I can't work in an organization that does that. I can't be part of an entity that espouses these kinds of, of views. And I think the allyship, especially in a younger generation, I don't know what you're seeing, but what I'm seeing is, you know, said, you know, we're not having it, basically, is what I see. Yeah, let me tell you, uh, every year I do a signature presentation. 2018, my signature presentation was Everyone Wants Ice Cream. In 2019, my signature presentation was Dinosaurs, Lions, and Diversity. In 2020, the signature presentation was going to be Less Allyship, More Action. Less Allyship, More Action. I haven't delivered it because I said, I want to wait and rock that from a stage somewhere. So we're going to save that one for like 2021, but it's absolutely incumbent upon us to lend our privilege. And so again, when I speak of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, I'm speaking in the totality. I'm speaking about humans. So that means even when you feel as you have been a disenfranchised group of people, let's say for instance, black people, you still should be lending your privilege because you have some to those that are a little less disenfranchised like people with disabilities. We need far more than a tweet. We need far more than an organization putting up something pretty on their website. We need far more than that contribution. We appreciate all of those things, but I wanna see action. I wanna see, and I don't want it to be performative. I wanna see action. So one of the things that I say to 
clients that I work with or in speeches, Steve, I say, if you want me to believe that your organization cares about diversity and inclusion, that your leaders need to make a declarative statement. That's number one. But one A to that is put some money in a black bank. And then I'll say to them, in 2000, there were 40 black banks in the country. Now we have 19. Those 19 banks total have less than $5 billion in assets under management. So if you want me to believe that Black Lives Matter and people with disabilities and all of that matters to your organization, tell us about it. And you don't have to tell us externally, but make sure internally they know where you stand as a leadership team, but then put some money in a black bank so that that bank can invest in the community. That bank can support some of those nonprofits that are supporting people with disabilities that are under supported, that don't have access to job, need money for their housing, need grocery money, need transportation money. There's a lot that that local bank can do for nonprofits to help communities that may be too small to be on your big company radar. So show me, let's take action. And if we take action, Steve, I promise we will do better. Last thing that I'll say on that, if nothing that I've said resonates, Citibank did the report, I'm sure you saw it a couple of weeks ago, that said racism has cost the U.S. $16 trillion. Now, I stop at $16 trillion because when I think about executives, this is an audience of individuals that are some acumen, incredible, you know, gifted, and we can go on. But then I say to myself, how is it that you can be in leadership or be a person, read that study, know that it is costing us and still continue to do the same thing that you've been doing. So that's my point. I think that if you are serious, less allyship, more action. Beautifully said. Tom, we, we can keep going and we will. We're just going to chop it up just, just a little bit uh, so we can uh, tackle some other topics in the future. But this was so instructive, uh, so informative. Appreciate the insights, the the practical advice as well. So we're going to look forward to having you back in the the very, very near future. To all of our listeners, if you're enjoying uh, Keeping Work Human, leave us a review, hit that free subscribe button, and you'll automatically receive our next episode. One of those next episodes is me and Torrin having another conversation similar to this on some other topic that I no doubt he and I will come up with. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Stay human. We'll talk to you real soon.